0: Love you. Well, good afternoon. Let's open our Bibles to Daniel chapter 4. You know, D.L. Moody used to say that the, the Sunday afternoon congregation was full of beef and unbelief. So hopefully you have the beef but no unbelief. And that you're ready to get into God's Word and study the Word of God. I want to thank Pastor John for the invite to come out and share Uh, the word with you guys, and it's a treat for, uh, I came out with Pastor Jerry, he's been out before, I haven't, but it's a treat for us. I'm born in California, raised in California, lived in California, I'm third generation California, and I'm seeing parts of the country that I've never seen before, never been in South Carolina, so, but it just thrills my heart to worship with you guys, to hear your love for the Lord, and just, just, I know that some of you are from California, but to just encourage you, there are Christians in California. <laughs> Ray Steadman used to talk about the sinful city of Corinth, writing to the Corinthians. And uh, he said that that epistle could be changed to First Californians. <laughs> but there are Christians in California. Pray for us, we pray for you. But uh, just excited to know that God is raising up an army of men that love the Lord and uh, want to be committed to serving Him. Amen. Well, my topic was given to me, it's the boastful pride of life, and I'm using the title that was assigned to me. We've got the longest chapter of the whole conference, and at first I thought I would skim some of it and highlight some, but we're going to actually read the entire chapter, and I want to talk to you this afternoon about the sin, yes, the sin, S-I-N, of pride, and I think it's something that every one of us deal with on on a different level. So let's pray and ask God to speak through His Word. Father, we thank You for this group of men. We pray that You would speak through Your Word. We pray that You would speak through what You've spoken. We ask that the Spirit of God would take the Word of God and transform these men of God into the image of You, Lord Jesus, the Son of God. So Lord, we thank You. We pray that You will help us to walk in humility, and brokenness and dependence upon you. May we be humble men of God. Lord, help us to eliminate pride in our lives by seeing you in all your glory, walking in that humility that you might use us for your glory. And we'll be careful to give you the praise, to give you the thanks, to give you all the glory. We ask it in Jesus' precious and holy name and everyone agreeing said. Amen and amen. Verse 1 of chapter 4 Nebuchadnezzar the king, unto all the people, nations, and languages that dwell in all of the earth, peace be multiplied unto you. He said, I thought it good to show the signs and the wonders that the God of heaven or the high God hath wrought toward me. How great are his signs and how mighty are his wonders. His kingdom is everlasting kingdom. And his dominion is is from generation to generation. Have you ever had an embarrassing moment? The answer is yes, right? Every one of us had an embarrassing moment. But you don't take your embarrassing moment and write a book about it for others to know. But that's what Nebuchadnezzar does in this chapter. Nebuchadnezzar has an embarrassing moment, not just an embarrassing moment, but he had seven years where he flipped out and went insane. His hair grows long, his nails grow long, and he becomes like a beast and goes into the field and eats grass for seven years. And the whole reason, if you know the chapter, was because he was filled with pride. Those who walk in pride, the Bible says, God is able to what? He's able to abase them. So this, this chapter is a powerful living testimony by a wicked pagan king of how God came to him in grace and mercy and love and humbled him, and many scholars, and I would concur, believe that one day we will see Nebuchadnezzar in heaven, can you imagine that, think about that, you get to heaven, and you're sitting at the last supper, and across the table there is King Nebuchadnezzar, and you say, King, would you pass the mashed potatoes, please, (laughs) hey, I read your testimony in Daniel chapter 4, that was insane, oh, you were insane, I guess, (laughs) But that, 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 was, that was amazing, just how God came to you and intervened in your life. And one of the overarching lessons that really blessed my heart is that God would care about this pagan king and not just judge him and snuff him out, but God would come to him in mercy and grace and love and humble him so that he would look up and come to salvation. How wonderful is our God that he would come to us, Amen. That he would come to you in your lowly estate. He would come and humble you and break you so that you would look up and come to a faith in Jesus Christ. So in verses 1 to 3 we just read, we have the preface to his proclamation. And this whole chapter is unique in that it's the testimony of a pagan Gentile king. And he's writing about how God showed, notice verse 2, the signs and the wonders and the high God, the high God hath wrought Now, there was a period of about seven years actually when God was dealing with this wicked king Nebuchadnezzar. And it's interesting, we've covered it so far. In chapter two, God gave him a dream of the great image and spoke to him. He was the head of gold, but he would be overthrown by the Medo Persian Empire. And then eventually, down at the bottom of the image, there would be the second coming. It would crumble. the kingdom would grow and it would be an everlasting kingdom, that his kingdom was temporary, wouldn't last. So God was trying to reach this pagan king. And then we saw in chapter 3 his power to deliver Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, how they were thrown into the fiery furnace, and the king saw them in there, and they were released and freed. So the king was again being witnessed to by the Lord. But the king has still not been broken, the king is still not humbled, he saw God in Daniel, he saw God in the three Hebrews, he saw God manifesting himself in so many ways, but he still walked in pride and God was needing to bring a humbling into his life. But the cool thing about this chapter, as I said, is he's recounting his testimony. I think every one of us should have a testimony. You may not be a theologian, you may not know Greek or Hebrew, you may not be able to eloquently defend your faith, but you can tell your story, amen? Sometimes people say, well, Pastor John, I got these Jehovah's Witnesses and they're coming to my house. Can you come over and straighten them out? You want me to come over and straighten them out? Why don't you just share your testimony? I was blind and now I see. I was lost and now I'm found. I was dead and now I'm alive. You know, what What? what can they do with that? They don't have a testimony. But if you're a Christian, you have a powerful testimony testimony of what you were, what God did for you, and what God has done with you now, and how he's transformed your life. So, amazing testimony. Now, there are four movements, if you're taking notes, and I encourage you to do that, through this chapter. And the first I call agitation the king's dream. And we see that in verse 4 down to verse 18. Follow with me as we read. He starts telling the story. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at rest in my house And I was flourishing in my palace, and I saw a dream which made me afraid, and the thoughts upon my bed and the visions of my head troubled me. Therefore made I, verse 6, a decree to bring all of the wise men of Babylon before me that they might make known unto me the interpretation of the dream. Now you think he would have learned his lesson back in chapter 2 that these wise men were charlatans and they can't really help him. But it's funny, when people are in distress, they many times turn to the wrong source for help. He doesn't turn first to Daniel. He turns again to his wise men. And so then came in, verse 7, the magicians, the astrologers, the Chaldeans, the soothsayers, and I told them the dream, but they could not make known unto me the interpretation thereof. What else is new? Back in chapter 2, When the king said, I had a dream, I want you to tell me what I dreamt and what it means, they said, in kind of a polite Chaldean way, king, you're crazy. No one would ever ask such a thing. You tell us the dream, and we'll tell you the interpretation." No, I want to make sure that you know what you're doing. You tell me the dream. Now, whether the king really knew the dream and was just testing them, or he might have genuinely forgot the dream, we don't know. But he didn't communicate the dream to them, wanted the interpretation, and they were unable to help him. So many times people, like the king, are looking in the wrong place for help. They turn to philosophy and psychology, they turn to science, they turn to politics, but they realize that none can help. But notice in verse 8, but at last Daniel came in before me, whose name was Belshazzar, according to the name of my God, in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And before him I told the dream, saying, O Belshazzar, master of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in thee, no secret troubles thee. Tell me the visions of my dream that I have seen and the interpretation thereof. Now I want you to go back for a moment to verse 4. And five. He said, I was at rest in my house, flourishing in my palace. This is Nebuchadnezzar's danger. The Bible says, Let him who stands take heed lest he what? Fall. fall. I was at rest in my house, I was at ease in my palace. It's that time of prosperity when we're in great danger. Let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he Fall. It's a sense of false security. And even though the king was in his palace, he had his position and his power and all of his possessions, it could not bring him what? Peace. It could not bring him peace. You know, you can go to a drugstore and you can buy sleep, but you can't buy rest. Only Jesus Christ can give you rest for your soul. Amen. And he said, if you're weary and heavy laden, come to me and I will give you rest. So the king needed God in his life. He was in grave danger. And maybe you're here this weekend and you think you've got it all together. I got a good job. I'm making good money. I got a house. You know, the mortgage is paid. I'm doing good. Everything's great. Let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. The moment you think I can handle temptation, I won't fall, be careful. It's your time of vulnerability and Danger. Remember when King David was walking on the roof of his palace while his men were out fighting the battle, and David was at his most vulnerable moment, and he looked over into the next courtyard and saw a beautiful woman taking a bath. And immediately David should have gone back in and taken a cold shower or done something like that. Instead, he looked, he lusted, he inquired, and he lie with her. Be careful. Idleness is the devil's workshop. Keep yourself occupied. Keep yourself focused on God and his purpose and plan and keep fighting those battles and don't get at rest or at ease. It's the dangerous time. Notice in verse five, I dreamed a dream which made me afraid and the thoughts upon my bed, the visions of my head troubled me. Here's this king who has all this power, possessions and wealth, and he's troubled, and he's disturbed, and he's shaken up. It could not bring him peace. So he turns to the worldly wise, and there's no answer to his dilemma until finally Daniel comes forward. Now, he had watched Daniel for many years and knew that God was in Daniel's life. So finally, Daniel has come in, and he turns to this great man of God. Now, I want you to notice that in verse 9, that this is the main theme and lesson of this, story, of this chapter that, 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 that uh, he might know that God reigns in the heavens. I want to know that I know that you have the holy gods is living in you. No secret will trouble thee. Tell me the visions of my dream that I've seen and the interpretation thereof. Now, beginning in verse 10, follow with me, the king reveals his dream down to verse 18. Thus were the visions of my head and my bed I saw, and behold, a tree. Chapter 2 was a great image, now it's a tree. In the midst of the earth and the height thereof was great, the tree grew and was strong. The height thereof reached unto the heavens and the sight thereof to the end of all the earth. The leaves therefore were fair and the fruit therefore was much and it was food for all the beast of the field and the shadow under it. And the fowls of the heaven dwelt in the boughs thereof and all flesh fed of it. And I saw the vision of my head upon my bed and behold a watcher and a holy one, reference to an angel, cried aloud, verse 14, and said, thus hew down the tree and cut off his branches. Shake off, notice this, his leaves, not its leaves. The, the angel is revealing that this is a, a reference to an individual or a person. Scatter his fruit, let the beast get away from under it and the fowls from under his branches. Nevertheless, verse 15, leave the stump of his root in the earth, even with a band of iron and brass and tender grass of the field, and let it be wet with the dew of heaven, and let his portion be with the beast in the grass of the earth. And again, verse 16, his heart be changed to a man's heart, and let the beast's heart be given unto him until seven times pass. Over him. Now, as I pointed out, he's using these personal pronouns now. So he switched from the allegory in the dream of a tree. He's focusing on the king. And so this matter by decree of the watchers and demand of the word of the Holy One. Now notice in verse 17, to the intent, now, th- this is the point I, met, I mentioned just a minute ago that is the main lesson of the chapter this is the purpose, to the intent that the living may know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men, gives it to whomsoever He will, and setteth up over it in the basis of men. This king, I, this dream I, Nebuchadnezzar, have seen. Now thou, O Belshazzar, declare the interpretation thereof, for as much as all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known unto me the interpretation but thou art able, for the spirit of the holy gods dwells in thee. So the need for the king after his time of insanity was to be given a new heart. He needed a new transplanted heart. But notice in verse 17, God's purpose was that you might know that the most high rules in the kingdom of men gives it to whomsoever he will and setteth up over it the basis of men. This statement is repeated three times in the chapter, verse 17, verse 25, and verse 32. You know, over the years that I've been a Christian, over the years I've pastored, and over the years I've been preaching, I'm gaining a greater appreciation for the doctrine of the sovereignty of God. We don't often hear a lot about that fact, and that basically means that God sits on the throne of the universe. I just finished a series in my own church doing Revelation chapter 1, the vision of Christ, chapters 2 and 3, the voice of Christ, chapters 4 and 5, the victory of Christ, the church in heaven. And every time John sees the throne in heaven, guess what? There's someone on it. Praise the Lord. Aren't you glad? Imagine if John says, then I saw a throne in heaven and ah, no one was on it started freaking out. Every time John sees the throne in heaven, there's someone on that throne. And guess what? He's sitting on the throne right now. In spite of all the craziness and chaos and trouble we see in our world today, Jesus Christ is still sitting on the throne. Amen? Amen? And he wants to sit on the throne of your heart and your life. And I think it's important for you to come to the place humbly, brokenly, That you submit to the sovereignty of God, where he has you, what he's doing in your life, what he's provided for you, that you're humbly grateful and thankful for all that God's done. And it's it's an important thing to, 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 to see that God is sovereign, that God is in control. There's nothing outside of God's control. Now, we move secondly in the story, verse 19 to 27, to interpretation, the king's dream. So he gets the, the king's danger. First of all, he gets the dream and he's agitated. Secondly, he gets the interpretation and it re, he realizes the danger that he's in. Verse 19, we see Daniel's reaction. Then Daniel, verse 19, whose name is Belshazzar, was astonished for one hour. Now, that, that's interesting to me. For a whole hour, he was completely freaked out. And we don't know all that was going through his mind and heart, but he realized the gravity and the sincer- the seriousness of the message that he had to deliver to this king. And so the thoughts of his head troubled him. And the king spoke, verse 18, and said, Belshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation thereof trouble you. Belshazzar answered and said, My lord, the dream... Be to them that hate you, and the interpretation thereof is to thine enemies. Now, this is a great, great classic picture of Daniel having a message to deliver to a very powerful, potentate, King Nebuchadnezzar. How would you like to tell Nebuchadnezzar that you're going to be humbled for seven years, turn into an animal, and go out and grovel in the field? I mean, it could be very easily off with your head. So I love the courage, I love the boldness, I love the faithfulness of Daniel here to pass on the message. He could have changed the interpretation to placate, you know, to favor for the king, to get the king to like him, maybe give him a prosperity message or a health and wealth message or things are going to be cool message and you're going to be even more famous and more powerful, you're awesome, we love you. Instead he had to deliver the goods. You know, for the few pastors that are here among us and for you guys that are preaching the word and even those that are working and serving in the church, nothing more important than for us to faithfully communicate God's word to God's people, amen? Amen. To be faithful stewards of the word of God, to dispense it, to share it as God has laid it out and entrusted it to us. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, Paul tells Timothy to preach the word, to do it instantly in season, out of season. And in doing that, he is to reprove, rebuke, and exhort. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort. And he's to do it with all long suffering and patience. And he tells them why because the time will come when men will not endure what? Sound. Doctrine, the word sound there is a medical term. It means health-giving, life-giving doctrine. But they will turn their ears away from the truth and shall be given unto fables. So you watch in all things. You do the work of an evangelist. You fulfill the ministry that I've entrusted to you. There's nothing more important for a pastor to do than to be faithful to preach God's word, to herald God's word. And at this moment, as I see Daniel standing before this king, and he feels the emotion for one hour, he's so troubled that he doesn't want to deliver the message. But the man of God must not fear the face of the people. He must be obedient to God and deliver the message as God has entrusted it to him. Then notice Daniel's revelation, verse 20 to 26, as he reveals the dream to the king. He says, the tree... That you saw, which grew and was strong, whose heights reached into the heavens, the sight thereof unto all the earth, whose leaves were fair, and the fruit thereof was much, and it was meat or food for all that were under it, the beast of the field that dwelt, and upon whose branches the fowls of the heaven had their habitation. It, verse twenty two, I love this, is thou, O king. This is the King James way of saying, You are the man thou art grown and become strong verse 22 and thy greatness is grown and the reaches to the heavens and thy dominion to all the ends of the earth and whereas the king saw the watcher and the holy one come down from heaven saying hew the tree down destroy it let the leaves and the uh, leave the stump excuse me of the roots thereof in the earth even with a band of iron and grass and the tender grass of the field let it be wet with the dew of heaven and let his portion be with the beast of the field till seven times or seven years pass over it now notice go back to verse 19 for just a moment Daniel's reaction and then Daniel's revelation and then Daniel giving him the message you are the you are the tree you're the man thou art grown and become strong reminds me of Nathan the prophet again when he had to visit David and deliver the message and he started with the story about the wealthy man that had the little ewe that had the many flocks and herds and took by force the one little ewe lamb from the poor man David got angry and said the man that's done this shall surely die and Nathan reached out his long bony prophetic finger you say how do you know that all prophets had long bony fingers Just read it in the white spaces. And had to look David right in the face and say, you are the man. Wow. So Daniel has to do the same thing. How about John the Baptist when King Herod was doing his adulterous thing and he actually pointed him out and called him to repent. We need more Daniels. We need more Nathans. We need more John the Baptists. And our pulpits today, Amen. Yes. We need to be praying that God raises up fearless men who will preach God's uncompromising word. You are the man. Now, I want you to note in verse twenty-four. This is the interpretation. Here's not Daniel's revelation, O King. And this is the this is the, and this is the this is the decree. Excuse me, of the Most High, which has come upon my Lord the King. That they shall drive you from men, and thy dwelling shall be with the beast of the field, and they shall make thee to eat grass like oxen, and they shall and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven, and seven times we know that is seven years shall pass over you, and here's that statement again, till you know that the most high dwells in the kingdom of men. And he gives it to whomsoever he will. Or he ruleth, excuse me, over the kingdom of men. And he gives it to whomsoever he will. And whereas thy commanded to leave the stump of the tree, thy kingdom shall be sure unto thee. After that, thou shalt have known that the heavens do rule. That same message God wants us to take to heart. God sits on the throne The heavens rule. We need to know that. Then notice verse 27. Wherefore, O king. Here's Daniel's recommendation or exhortation. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable unto thee. Break off thy sins by righteousness and thine iniquity by showing mercy to the poor, if it may be the lengthening or the continuing of thy tranquility or thy prosperity. So not only did Daniel faithfully as we need to share the message he didn't water it down, he didn't compromise it, he didn't add to it, he didn't subtract from it he didn't substitute it he didn't dilute it he gave them the message. That's what we need to do. And then he applied the message he said I recommend I exhort you break off your sins by righteousness. Basically, Daniel's telling him to do three things. Note it, note it, verse 27. He's telling him to repent. This is kind of Daniel's way of saying, repent, break off your sins, and then do righteousness. Repentance, metanoia, means to change your mind. But it involves not only the change of our mind about Jesus, about our sin, about the direction we're going, but it involves a turning around. I love the you turn for Christ kind of motto. You turn for Christ. You repent. You turn from your sin to Christ, and he sets you free. So you need to break off your sins by turning back, and then secondly, show mercy, and then thirdly, live righteously. So he calls the king to repentance. How important that is. But we move in the story, verse 28 to 33, to the third section, and that is humiliation, the king's discipline. So first we see the king has the dream, then he's in danger. Now we see the discipline God brought in humbling the king, verse 28. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. Why? Because he didn't repent. He didn't listen to the preacher. The preacher said, you need to repent. You need to do righteousness. You need to show mercy. And he didn't repent. Notice in verse 29. At the end of 12 months, he walked in the palace of the kingdom of Babylon. And the king spake and said, is not this great Babylon that I have built for the house of the kingdom by the might of my power? And for the honor of my majesty. And notice his punishment. While the word was in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven saying, O king Nebuchadnezzar, to thee it is spoken, the kingdom is departed from thee. And they shall drive thee from men, and thy dwelling shall be with the beast of the field. They shall make thee to eat grass like oxen till seven times pass over thee, and till again, and here's the third time this same statement is made until thou knowest that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men, and he gives it to whomever he will. In that same hour, verse 33, was the thing fulfilled upon Nebuchadnezzar. And he was driven from men, did eat grass as oxen, his body was wet with the dew of heaven, till his hair grew like eagles' feathers and his nails like birds' claws. Now, God gave Nebuchadnezzar graciously after the message was interpreted to him by Daniel to repent. He was the tree. You're going to be cut off, but there's the stump that will remain. There's hope. You'll be restored. But God gave him one year to repent. God is long-suffering. God is merciful. God is patient. And he did not repent. Notice in verse 29, 12 months he walked in the palace of his kingdom how long suffering is our god he could have smoked him a year ago but then i love it verse 30 the king strolling on his palace and if you've ever studied about the city of babylon it was magnificent it was just one of the one of the wonders of the ancient world the great city of babylon with its hanging gardens and its massive walls and its beautiful you know gates and all the splendor of babylon and he's strolling along the palace wall, and I don't know who he was talking to. Guys that are pride like to talk to themselves. Perhaps he was looking in the mirror, checking him out. You're looking good. Is <laughs> not this Babylon which I have made with my power, with my might? And he boastfully, proudly began to boast. You know, pride originated. Isaiah 14, in the heart of an angel by the name of Lucifer. One of the greatest mysteries in all the universe, biblically, theologically speaking, is the mystery of evil. If nothing existed but God, God is eternal, and God created all things. And where, did, where did evil come from? That is, I believe, biblically the greatest mystery. And it doesn't freak me out. God's sovereign. He's bigger than I am. He knows how. I, 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 don't, I don't have to understand it or work it out. We'll figure it out someday. God will reveal it to us. All we know is what God has revealed in his word. And what is revealed in his word is that it has started in the heart of an angel named Lucifer. A powerful angel. Some feel that he was maybe in charge of the worship of heaven. And when Lucifer was lifted with pride... We have the five I wills in Isaiah 14. I will exalt myself before above God. I will exalt myself before the throne of God. I will exalt myself above the throne of God. I will be like the Most High. It was pride. Think about this. The original sin that plunged the whole world into death and destruction started in the heart of Lucifer. It was pride. You don't think pride is a big deal? It is a big deal. You don't think pride is a dangerous thing? It is a dangerous thing. You're really just playing into Satan's camp when you are walking in pride, thinking that you are the one that has accomplished all the things that you have in your life. So the king's pride is seen very clearly in the story in verse 30. So we need to be careful that we do not walk in pride, that we do not think this is my house. These are my automobiles. This is my bank account. This is my wife. These are my children. It's not this great Babylon which I have made. You know, the Bible says, what have we but what we've received from God? We all know that if God gave us what we deserved, we beware. And I just thought I'd encourage you. You don't ever pray, God, give me what I deserve. Pile of ashes. A puff of smoke. Well, I deserve a better wife. Mine's all tweaked. You deserve hell. Again, think about that. We don't deserve anything. We don't deserve anything. When we, when we go to bed at night, God keeps us breathing. God gives you strength and help, and, and God keeps you ticking. But. Nine years ago I had a stroke and I still live with the effects of my stroke. I have on the right side of my body what's called spasticity. And I look back at that time when I I was actually getting ready to paddle out on my surfboard. Thank God it happened on the beach and not in the ocean. But I realized that God reached down from heaven and touched me to humble me and to break me. To remind me that I have nothing but what God has given me. All comes from God. Amen? Amen. May God keep us humbly dependent on him. That's always been a prayer. I saw my dad do that. He's gone to heaven. I had an amazing Christian mom and dad, but my dad was a humble, godly man. But he always used to pray in his humility, God, keep me dependent on you. Help me not to get prideful or think that I can be living independently of you or your will or your word or your purpose for me it's a dangerous thing when we begin to think that we can do it without god or we can live independently from god or that we're the ones that have built our own kingdom about that time that god obviously will humble us let me give you real quick before we wrap up our story on nebuchadnezzar five reasons to repent of pride five reasons to be repentant of pride number one god hates pride Write down Proverbs 16, verse 5. Everyone that is proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Now, that ought to be enough, right, guys? If you're proud, it's an abomination to God. Write down Proverbs 6, verse 16 and 17. These six things, does the Lord hate, yea? Seven are an abomination unto him. And in Proverbs 6, verse 17... The very first sin on the list is what a proud look. So it's an abomination to God, and it's a sin. Then, second reason we should repent of pride is that God chastens the proud, pictured in Nebuchadnezzar, James chapter four verse six. God resists the proud. God chastens or resists the proud, but He does what? He gives grace to the humble. And humility is the opposite of pride. Pride is undue self-esteem. Humility is not thinking about yourself. Let me give you the third reason you should resist pride. Pride is sin. Proverbs 21, verse 4, a high look and a proud heart is sin. So not only an abomination to God, but the Bible actually declares it to be sin. And then we see fourthly, that pride leads to a fall. Proverbs 16, verse 18. Pride goeth before destruction and a haughty spirit before what? A fall. And we we could spend hours looking at all the examples of men and women in the Bible that were proud and God had to humble. How about King Agrippa in the book of Acts that gave the speech? And they said, it's the voice of a God and not of a man. And everyone applauded. And he went, yes, yes, yes. And God smote him with worms, and he died a few days later. How, how massive was that? David walked on the roof of his palace. You know what David's great sin was? Not with Bathsheba, but later on when David numbered the people out of what? Pride. You, we don't hear much about that. We always hear about David and Bathsheba. But what about when David was so proud of the kingdom a which over he reigned. And he wanted a census taken so he could number all the people to know man, how many people came to my church. Let's take a census. Let's count heads. And a whole bunch of people die because of David's sin. Pride comes before a fall and a haughty spirit before destruction. Another reason why we should abandon and repent of pride. And fifthly and lastly, pride leads to shame. Proverbs 11 verse 2, when pride cometh, Then cometh shame, but with the lowly is wisdom. So if you want to be shamed and humbled and fall and sin and grieve the heart of God, then you walk in pride. So in verse 31, while the word was in the king's mouth, this is his punishment, there fell a voice from heaven saying, Thou, O King Nebuchadnezzar, to thee it is spoken, the kingdom is departed from thee. And he was, like the dream said, driven into the field. And for seven years, he became a madman. Can you imagine that? Where's the president? He's out and back eating grass. But the liberal media would have a blast with that one with Donald Trump. Where's the president? Eating grass behind the White House. We really think it's time to impeach him now. Have you seen him lately? Freaky. And we don't know, the Bible doesn't say who ran the kingdom. Some people think Daniel filled in for him, Daniel covered for him, I don't know. But for seven years until, and I pointed it out three times, verse 17, verse 25, and verse 32, till you know that the most high rules in the kingdom of men, and he gives it to whomsoever he will. You know what, God wants you to know the same thing. He does, he wants you to know the same thing. He wants you to know that he is in control. And he will do what he needs to do to humble you and to break you, to bring you to that place of full surrender. So the same hour was Nebuchadnezzar fulfilled upon, or was, the, was that thing, excuse me, fulfilled upon Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from men, eat grass as an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hairs were grown like eagle's feathers and his nails became like birds and claws. Now, one last section, verse 34 to verse 37, restoration, the king's deliverance. And in verse 34, at that end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, is recounting, by the way, the first three verses were written in retrospect. They actually belong at the end of the chapter. But he says, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was lifted lifted up my eyes, excuse me, unto heaven, and my understanding returned unto me, and I blessed the Most High and I praised and honored them that live forever and, ever, and his, that lives forever and ever, whose dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom is from generation to generation. And all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. He does according to his will, and the army of heaven, and among the inhabitants of the earth, none can stay his hand. Or say to him, What doest thou? And at the same time, my reason returned unto me. The sin of pride brings in temporary insanity. And his reason came back. For the glory of, the, of my kingdom, mine honor and brightness returned unto me and my counselors and my lords sought me. I was established in my kingdom and an excellent majesty was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, extol, and honor the King of heaven all whose works are truth, and his ways, judgment. And those who walk in pride, he is able to what? He's able to put down or able to abase. And I want you to notice the steps in Nebuchadnezzar's restoration. Number one, he looked up to God, verse 34. I lifted up mine eyes unto heaven. You know, the best way to stay humble is to keep your eyes constantly fixed on Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Keep your eyes constantly fixed on Jesus Christ. Remember Isaiah chapter 6, when Isaiah saw the Lord, which is a reference to Jesus, by the way, on the throne, the Lord, Jehovah, high and lifted up, and his glory filled the temple. What did Isaiah say? Far out. Man, that's awesome cool, check it out. And no, he said, whoa, is me, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell amongst the people who are unclean. You know, when you really see God, you see yourself. And when you see God, you see yourself as you really are, a sinner. It's easy to think you're pretty hot when you're looking at other people. You can always find somebody more messed up than you. Just keep looking. That dude's really messed up, so it makes me feel pretty good. But when you fix your eyes on Jesus Christ, what does it do? It humbles you. It humbles you. Some of the reasons that we experience so much pride is that we're not looking at Jesus. We're not being humble because we're not seeing the glory of God, how important that is second thing he did was, verse 34, he began to bless the Most High and praise and honored him because he lives forever. So he began to praise the Lord, began to worship the Lord, become a worshiper of God every day, praising him. And then thirdly, it says at the end of verse 35, none can stay his hand or say unto him, what are you doing? And we do that all the time. What are you doing, God? What's going on here? Why are we the ones in control? Are we the ones calling the shot? So what he did thirdly was he submitted to God. So he looked up to God. He praised God. And then he submitted to God. I love Romans 12, 1. After 11 chapters of doctrine, Paul says, I beg you by the mercies of God that you do what? That you present. In the Greek, it's a once and for all act. You give your bodies to God. And your body is your Whole being, your body, soul, and spirit, your mind, your will, your emotions, everything, that you present your bodies to God as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable, which is your reasonable act of worship or service to God. The best way to resist pride is to fix your eyes on Jesus, guys, to begin to worship Jesus and then submit to Jesus. I, I grew up in the church and I. Heard hymns from the time I was a little boy, so many of them are lodged in my brain. But I love that old hymn where I used to sing, I'll go where you want me to go, O Lord. I'll do what you want me to do, O Lord. I'll be what you want me to be, O Lord. And I'll say what you want me to say, O Lord. Are you willing to pray that prayer? Is your all on the altar of sacrifice laying? Are you willing to say, I will go wherever you want me to go? I'll do whatever you want me to do. I'll be whatever you want me to be. I'll say whatever you want me to say. That's brokenness and humility. King Neb came to a saving knowledge of the God of the universe. But he had to be broken and humbled. Don't let that happen to you. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God and he will do what? He will exalt you. And he does it in his due time. And he exalts you to the place and the position he wants you to be. It's not your choice. It's not your choice. It's not your choice where you work, where you go, what you do, what you say. If you're a Christian, you've been bought by the blood of Jesus Christ. You belong to him. Therefore, glorify God in your body. Now, by way of conclusion, I want to just drive home these three points about humility and pride as they relate to salvation, sanctification, and service. Humility is the opposite of pride and is necessary for salvation. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, blessed are the, what, poor in spirit. Salvation starts with a broken heart, a broken and contrite heart, poverty of spirit. I have nothing to offer to God. Jesus told the parable of the Pharisee and the publican. Pharisee prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you. I'm not like other men, extortioners, rip-off artists, all these horrible, not like that tax collector over there. I give tithes of all that I possess. I fast every week. Aren't I amazing? Publican bent down his head, beat on his breast, and said, God, be merciful to me. A what? A sinner. A sinner. Jesus said, which of those two went home justified? They knew the the point. The man who was humble, who saw that he had nothing to offer to God. Humility is necessary for salvation. Secondly, humility, the opposite of pride, is necessary for sanctification. That's why I quoted Romans chapter 12. If you're going to live a holy life and a godly life, then you must die completely and let God take control of your life. You must come to the cross for not only salvation, but you must come to the cross for sanctification. You come to the cross to walk in brokenness and dependence and humility. And then thirdly, humility is necessary for service. If your pride, heart is in control, you won't get saved. If you're proud, you won't be sanctified. And if you're proud, God can't use you. You'll be shelved. I love 2 Corinthians chapter 12 where Paul the Apostle said because of the abundance of the revelations that were given to him, there was given to me. He just described he's caught up to the third heaven, saw these things, heard these things, and amazing goes. Because of that, because of the paradise experience, there there was given to me. Listen to his words very carefully. There was given to me. Then what does he say? A thorn in my what? A messenger of Satan to do what? Buffet me. Wow. Who gave it to him? He said someone gave it to him. Who gave it to him? God did. You go, I thought God loved me. He does. That's why he sent a thorn, a stake for your flesh. That's why he sent a messenger of Satan to buffet you. And then Paul tells us the reason why. Why? Lest I should be, what? Exalted above measure. So God in his love, God in his grace, God in his mercy, like King Nebuchadnezzar, comes to you and I, and he humbles us. Maybe you have a heart attack. Maybe you lose your job. Maybe you have an automobile accident. Maybe you have a stroke. I don't know what it is, but it's God's grace and God's mercy. And because God wanted to keep Paul usable, he wanted to keep him humble because he knew that Paul would be shelved if Paul became filled with pride. So God knows how to balance our lives. From the blessings of paradise, he brought him to the pain of the stake and his flesh to keep him humble, to keep him dependent. So what we want to value is knowing that the Lord will use us. We want character, not comfort. D.L. Moody said this. He said, God sends no one away empty except for those who are full of themselves. I love that. What God wants to do with us as men, he wants us to break us so that he can make us and use us for his glory. Amen? Let's surrender to him. Let's pray.